This is a good group. Looking around, uh, we may have run out of outlines. There may be some in the back. Uh, I had Crystal print them up based on what we've been having the last couple of weeks, and so we may be a few short. If you don't have an outline on Romans, then you can just follow along as we, as we roll through this. Take a Bible and find Romans. We're going to look at some different verses in this book. It is sort of a daunting task to think about we're going to talk about the entire book of Romans in one evening setting. Um, the book of Genesis is a hard book to cover in one evening setting. The book of Psalms is a hard book to cover in one evening setting. Uh, but Romans is a, is a tricky one. Mark, before, before you guys showed up, Mark Dawson was here practicing and warming up. And um, was it, Did you say it was in, where's Mark at? Did you say it was college? Or it was in college, and he had a Bible study, and the guy was going to do Romans 8, and he was going to do it over four hours. So four hours on just one chapter, and he got through eight verses in four hours. And that's the kind of book Romans is. I mean, you can dig in, and you can just sort of get in the weeds as much as you want to. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in, a, you know, in just a good way, in a realistic way. You could spend a lot of time here. Uh, my former pastor is going to be doing a... A Bible study actually at First Baptist Odessa um, later this month and he's going to take four hours to study two chapters of Romans and I know him and he's going to get through about eight verses in four, four hours that's the way it's going to go so um, it's a tricky book to, uh, to try to condense into one evening but we'll do our best to do it does anybody know what magnum opus means oh there it is Go ahead and put that next, there it is. Great, great work. Great work. Um, I could give you lots of examples of this, but a, a magnum opus is somebody, um, an, an author, an artist, a composer, a musician, and they create a lot of different things, but they sort of pour all of their energy into one thing, and they want it to be their one great crowning achievement. And sometimes uh, an artist of various kinds will intentionally try to create a magnum opus. And sometimes, in fact, a lot of the times, history just sort of looks back and decides what your magnum opus is and says, this was your greatest work. This was the great thing that you did. So a couple of examples I found just looking around this week, um, reading different things. War and Peace by Tolstoy, Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Those guys wrote lots of stuff. But most people say this was their one great work uh, that they came up with. Uh, if you're a fan of classical music, you could argue with these maybe, but some people would say Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is his magnum opus. Some people would say Handel's Messiah uh, is his magnum opus. And you could do this in art, in film, and in lots of different things. And like I said, usually history looks back and decides what your great work is uh, if you create books or art or music or whatever. And as I thought about Magnum Opus, I was reminded of a story of a Christian scholar. His name's George Ladd. I don't have a picture of him. I should have put one up there. But his name's George Ladd. Um, his picture would have been a good one because he's a funny-looking guy. was a funny-looking guy. But he had written all these books and um, written about uh, end times, eschatology-type related things, the kingdom of God, and was a fairly well-respected scholar. And he set out about the middle of his career 
to create his magnum opus. And his hope was, he's an evangelical scholar, so he would preach in our church and you would just sort of nod along and feel comfortable with what he had to say. His hope was, I'm going to write a book so great about the kingdom of God that all of the academic ivory tower theologians, the liberal scholars, the quote-unquote well-respected scholars will look at it and admire it for being so wonderful. And so he set out to do this, and he worked, 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 and he released it. And the first week that it was released, one of the men he respected the most just trashed it, just said it's absolutely worthless, it's garbage, and it just crushed him because he had set out to create this great work, and uh, people didn't see it that way. When you look at the New Testament, and you look at all the letters that Paul wrote, and you look back with perspective, of course, we believe they're all important. We believe they're all inspired by God. We believe they're all equally true, and they're all valuable, and they're all important, and we should study all of them. But it's really not even debatable that this is his greatest letter. This is his most important letter. Um, when I talk with a new Christian or somebody who's curious about Christianity, I tell them, you need to read four books in the Bible. Don't just start trying to read all of it. You need to read Genesis. You need to read Psalms. You need to read the Gospel of John. And you need to read the book of Romans. This is in those four that you say, there's so much in it, you can't miss it. You've got to... You've got to understand this. So we're going to talk about Romans. Understand that we're going through this series. We're on, what is Romans, number 45. We're going through all 66 books of the Bible. We've gone through the Gospels. We've gone through Acts. And now we're in a group of books that goes all the way up to Revelation. Revelation's all by itself, but all the way up through Revelation called Epistles. And so we're now in the epistles, and there's basically two types of epistles, Pauline, that are written by Paul, and Catholic, not that are Catholic as the Catholic church down the street, but Catholic meaning they're general in nature. Sometimes, in fact, they're called general epistles. And so most of Paul's letters, we look at, in fact, all of his letters, and somewhere in that letter, we can figure out who he's writing to and why he's writing to them. And the Catholic epistles are more general. You read them, and they're just more universally applicable uh, to Christians of all walks of life. But we're now in the epistles, and specifically we're in the Pauline epistles. Now, just go through this thought with me, okay? When we talk about epistles, we're talking about letters, okay? So this would be in the category of what we call emails today, because most of you don't sit down and write <laughs> letters. Most people don't, don't do that anymore. Letters, emails messages sent from one person to another. Um, we've lived at, at our new house now for a little over a year, and we still get mail from the people who lived there before us, right? I don't, I don't know anything about those people when I bought the house from them. Nothing. But I know some things about them now <laughs> because I've read their mail. And I know who they owe money to, and I know how much money they have in the bank, and I know what institutions they're connected with, and I know who they buy products from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. When you look into another person's mail, and to be clear, I'm only doing this at mail that shows up at my house. I'm not going up and down the street. You learn about people, right? And when you look at Romans, 
1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all the way through these letters, these epistles, you've got to keep in mind, I'm reading someone else's mail, right? Somebody specific sat down and wrote this epistle, this letter, and they had somebody else in mind that they were sending it to, and there was something going on in the life of the author and the life of the recipients that prompted this letter. And it's a lot easier to understand a letter if you know all of those things before you read it. But we're 2,000 years removed. So we can piece some things together from history and we can figure out some things from the book of Acts. But a lot of the things when you read this, you're sort of trying to figure out, okay, who wrote this? Paul wrote this. And who did he write it to? Okay, these people in, in Rome. And why did he write it? And you're sort of trying to, to put all these pieces together. Um, here's Paul's epistles, Paul's letters. You can break them down into one, two, three, four, five, six categories. And really the first four are the only ones you need to concern yourself with, but I'll put the other two on there just for fun. Some of Paul's letters are called, grouped as, eschatological epistles. And eschatology is the study of the end. The study of last things. And so some of Paul's letters, in particular, First and Second Thessalonians, most of what Paul talks about in those letters are end times. And the problem, we know from reading those letters and you know, looking into other people's mail, is people in Thessalonica were totally confused about the end times. They were just all flipped upside down and they didn't know what was going on and they were talking about crazy things and Paul wrote these two letters to line them out. And it's interesting to me that a lot of people who want to talk about end times, eschatology, I'm not sure that they've read First and Second Thessalonians. They've read Revelation and they think they're an expert on Revelation. They think of the thousands of interpretations of Revelation. Theirs is the exact perfect right one. But they haven't taken the time to read First and Second Thessalonians that are really clear on some of the things that people argue about. So you've got eschatological epistles. You've got soteriological epistles. Soteriology is the study of salvation. And the big themes in these letters are themes and issues related to the salvation of sinners. So you have Romans and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians. You have prison epistles named that because Paul wrote them while he was in prison. You have pastoral epistles because those three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, um, those letters deal with church issues, pastor issues. In fact, they're written to pastors. And Paul's giving these young, new pastors instruction on how to run the church, how to do their job, etc., etc. Questionable. Questionable not in the sense that it belongs in the Bible, but questionable in the sense that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And you got a lot of scholars that say Paul wrote it, and you have a lot of smart guys that say, no, he didn't write it, and you can pick whatever you want to believe. I don't know that it really makes a whole hill of beans difference, but um, we'll put that in there sort of maybe in italics. And then missing epistles. And before you get too concerned about missing epistles, let me just explain that um, when we, we're going to talk about this next week in detail. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says something in 1 Corinthians referring to another letter he already sent them. We don't have that letter. Don't be worried. We don't need it. God gave you what you need in the Bible. But there was another letter that he wrote to them. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about 
a previous letter that really doesn't line up with anything that we read in 1 Corinthians. So there's sort of a Corinthians A that comes before 1st, and then maybe a Corinthians, we'll call it C, that would come in between 1st and 2nd. Some scholars look at the book of Ephesians and say it sounds like from Ephesians that Paul sent a letter to Ephesus before the Ephesians that we have. We don't have it. We don't know what was in it. But it seems like maybe it points that Paul is referring to that. And we do know that uh, that LAO is in reference to a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea. And in Colossians 4.16, he says, I wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. And you should get their letter and you should give them your letter. You should switch them after you read them. And we don't have that letter. Again, we don't need it. God gave you what you need in the Bible. But we do know some other letters that Paul wrote that are not in our Bible. Just a few um, thoughts here from church history about the importance of Romans. I told you earlier sort of the, the daunting task of walking through it in 30 minutes. But here's some voices from church history and what they had to say about the book of Romans. Guy up on the top left is a guy named St. John Chrysostom. And he was a pastor in North Africa in the very early years of the church. And his nickname was Golden Mouth because he was apparently very uh, eloquent as a speaker and known as a great preacher. And so his name was Golden Mouth. And John, St. John Chrysostom, he had somebody read out loud to him the book of Romans once a week, every week of his life. He said, it's so important that every week I'm going to sit down and I am going to listen to somebody else read this letter to me. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to stop and do that. And you say, well, he lived 2,000 years ago. They didn't have anything better to do. They had plenty to do, just like we do. And he said, it's such an important book, I'm going to listen to it once a week. Augustine, um, maybe the, one of the smartest men who's ever lived, one of the most important teachers or preachers in all of, all of church history. Augustine is there on the top right, maybe. Of course, it's a drawing. Augustine said that it was the book of Romans that brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. Reading through the book of Romans helped him to understand the gospel. Martin Luther, down on the bottom left, he said, the book of Romans is the gateway to heaven. And are you ready for this? It should be memorized by every Christian. So get busy. You have a New Year's resolution. Memorize Romans. You could do that, by the way, you know, if you wanted to. Everyone in here, if you really wanted to, myself included, I have no excuse. You could do that, right? I could turn on, get Corey to turn on Spotify on your favorite genre of music, and we could start rolling through songs you haven't heard in five years, and when it came on, you'd just start going. You'd know all the words, and they'd just come back to you. It's because you can remember things. Your brain works that way. And uh, anyways, Luther said you ought to memorize it. John Wesley, down there in the bottom in the middle. John Wesley became a believer sitting in a church listening to somebody read Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And it wasn't even the main commentary like verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. It was the preface. Somebody stands up in church. You think I'm boring sometimes. Somebody stood up in church with a commentary and started reading in the preface. And John Wesley was there and listening to it, he understood the gospel and he was saved. Matthew Henry, down on the bottom right, a Puritan, 
and uh, famous for some of the commentaries he wrote. He said it is the, Romans is the superlative star of all of Paul's epistles. So I could go on. I could put pictures up there and just on and on and on, give you examples, but you get the point. This is an important book. Here's the outline to Romans. It is very simple to outline. There's an introduction. Then there's a big section of doctrine. Then there's a smaller section of application. And then it ends with greetings. That's it. Four sections. Introduction. Doctrine. Application and greetings. Let me give you some characteristics of Romans. Just a few things that you ought to know about this book. I don't believe these are on your outline, but a few things to think about. This is the most systematic of all of Paul's letters. His argumentation is just very logical and very tight, and he's moving from one point right to the other. And I don't want, I don't want you to think that some of Paul's letters were hastily written, but some of Paul's letters you read, I don't want to use the word ramble, but he just sort of chases some thoughts here and there, and he goes around, and he talks about different things. In Romans, it's like this guy has thought out really, really carefully what he wants to say, and he's moving through it just step by step. Everything fits right in its place. Um, there's a strong emphasis in Romans on doctrine. When you read most of Paul's letters, half of it is doctrine, half of it is application. But when you read Romans, it's more than half his doctrine and less than half his application. So he's really emphasizing doctrine and theology and truth. Um, there's a lot of Old Testament quotations in the book of Romans. Um, all of Paul's letters refer back to the Old Testament, quote the Old Testament, but there's a lot of them in Romans. Um, and they come in bunches and he just he's going back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. And something that's kind of interesting when you read through Romans is in Romans... Paul expresses a, uh, a remarkable love for the Jewish people. And I say that that's remarkable because Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And a lot of times we think about the story of Acts and Peter and Paul and we say, well, Peter kind of focused on the Jews. Paul went and he did his thing with the Gentiles. That was his focus. That was his calling. And that's true. But in Romans, Paul says some things about the Jewish people that show you just how much he cared about them, just how much he loved them, just how much he was burdened for them. And uh, it's, a, it's an important emphasis in Romans. Just a few, we're going to go through these quickly, a few literary things about Romans. Paul is the author, but I want you to look at Romans 16, 22. When he wrote this book, he used an amanuensis or a scribe. Romans 6.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And when you read that, you don't need to say, wait a minute, I thought at the beginning it said Paul was the one talking, and now it says Tertius is the one talking. The setup was Paul sat down and Paul started speaking, and Tertius was a scribe or an amanuensis as it was called, and he wrote it out. So how many of you remember Gilligan's Island? Remember the TV show Gilligan's Island? You remember Thurston Howell? And you remember every now and then he would feel like he needed to dictate something and somebody needed to write it down. His wife would write it down and so he'd say, Lovey, get your pen and your paper and write this down. And he would start talking and she would be scribbling on. That's the picture, right? 
He's speaking. It's his words. His wife's writing it down, and that's what happened with Romans. Paul's speaking, and uh, Tertius is writing this down. We know that he wrote this book from Corinth. Um, he was on his third missionary trip, and we're not going to look these verses up, but I'm going to give these to you if you're interested in going back and reading this. It's sort of interesting to piece it all together. Um, we know it was the end of his third mission trip because he talks about an offering that he had collected for the Jews in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Romans 15, 22 to 26. Uh, he talks about this offering that he's taking back to Jerusalem. So we know that's the end of his third missionary trip. Um, he also talks about in Romans 16, 23, a guy named Erastus. And it just so happens we know from other passages in the Bible that Erastus was the city treasurer in Corinth. So there's another piece of the, the puzzle there. We know that he's there. In uh, Romans 16, 1-2, Paul Minson mentions a town called Sincrea, and that is very, very close to Corinth. And so we know where he was. We know about what was going on in his life. And uh, he wrote it for several reasons. One reason he wrote this letter is to prepare for a visit to Rome. And so look at Romans 1, verse 11. Paul had never been to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. And he's writing this letter sort of to say, hey, I'm, I want to come. I'm trying to come see you guys. Romans 1.11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And then down in verse 15 he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's what's kind of interesting about this. In other places, Paul specifically spells out in the New Testament... My mission is to preach Jesus Christ where he is not known. I'm going to the places where they have never heard about Jesus. But here he says, and scholars debate the reason, here he says, there's already a church in Rome, but I want to go. And I want to preach to them, and I want to be encouraged by them, and I want to meet these people, and I want to fellowship with them. So he wanted to visit. We also know, look at Romans 15, we know that he was worried about taking this offering to Jerusalem. Romans 15, look at verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So he's asking them to pray for him. Why does he want them to pray? Verse 31, that, my, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you. Amen. Somewhere on this third missionary journey, Paul met some guys who came to him and begged him not to go to Jerusalem. Right? He's on this trip, missionary trip. He's going to all these churches. He's collecting an offering, and he's taking it back to Jerusalem because there was a famine. They had no food. And he wants all these churches to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, you can read about this in Acts, some guys came to Paul and said, look, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested and it's going to be bad. They want to kill you in Jerusalem. They hate you in Jerusalem. And Paul basically said, well, I'm going anyways. But look, that's in the back of his mind. And he's thinking about that. And he's getting close to the end of this third missionary trip, leaving Corinth, and he's thinking, oh, 
it could get bad, it could get dicey, it could get risky in Jerusalem. And so some scholars say maybe Paul thought he was going to die when he got to Jerusalem. And maybe he did sit, set out to write his magnum opus. Maybe he said, look, if this is my last trip, I'm not going to chicken out. But before I die, I want to produce one big important work. So that's a little bit of speculation, but maybe so. And uh, the last thing that, that Paul wanted to do in this letter is to give instructions about some specific problems at the church in Rome. And you specifically see this towards the end of the book, the application and the, the greetings at the end. He's talking to specific people about specific situations. He's heard what's going on in this church, and he's writing this letter to try to help these people out of some of this stuff. Um, the Catholic Church, and when I say Catholic, I'm talking about the Pope, Catholic, all that stuff. They believe and they teach that Peter founded the church in Rome. No evidence of that. Um, we know that Peter probably ended up there and he probably died there, but no evidence that he founded this church. Most scholars say that this church was started by Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, heard Peter preach, went back to their own community, their own town, and started church. Um, that's pretty, pretty well agreed upon um, by scholars. We know that the church in Rome was mostly Gentile and a minority Jewish. Now think about that. Started by Jews who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost, went back, started a church, but it's mostly a Gentile church. And here's how we know this. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome early 50s, 51, 52, 53. We know for a fact that in 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Expelled every one of them. And it's kind of interesting why he did it. He said, these Jews will not shut up causing problems about some guy named Crestus. He got the name a little bit off. Christus, Jesus. All these Jews in Rome are coming to faith in Jesus. And the emperor felt threatened by it. And he thought there's going to be an uprising. There's going to be a revolt. They keep talking about this king named Crestus. He didn't understand what was going on, and he kicked all of them out. And we know, for example, some, some of the Jews that had to leave, Priscilla and Aquila, were in Rome and had to leave uh, in 49 because of that. So there's a question up here about the chapters in Romans. We're not going to talk about that for the sake of time. Um, if you want to discuss that later, we can argue about it. But you have the chapters in the book of Romans that are supposed to be there. Let's end it with that. Let me give you 10 truths from Romans, and this is my attempt to summarize the most important things you need to take away from Romans. And I sat down earlier this week when I was doing this, and I thought, okay, Romans is such a big book, but I want to make it as simple as possible. I just don't want to overwhelm people with stuff. So I said, I'm going to come up with five truths from Romans came up with my five and then I thought of a few more and I thought well seven's a good biblical number let's go with seven and I got to seven and I thought well ten is okay too let's just round it off and go to ten and then I just stopped and I said I'm not putting any more in there so you understand this is not the only ten important truths you need to take away from Romans but these are ten big ones okay number one all pe people are sinners 
by nature and by choice. No one deserves salvation. You really need to understand if you want to get Romans and if you want to get the Bible, period, the idea that all people are sinners by nature. We think, in our logical minds, we say, well, I'm a sinner because I do bad things. When I start to do bad things, that's what makes me a sinful person. What Paul says in Romans is, no, you do bad things because you are a sinner. You show up on this planet a sinner. There's something wrong, broken inside of you when you arrive on this earth that then results in the fact that you do make sinful choices. You can read this clearly in Romans 5. People are sinners by nature. Um, look at Romans 3. I could give you so many verses for all of these truths, but I just tried to keep it simple. Romans 3. Start in verse 9. This is the culmination of really the first chapter and a half after the introduction to the book. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written. You remember I told you, Paul, you like to use the Old Testament? As it is written. And in my Bible, you notice you're reading sort of big, wide columns of words. And then you go right in the middle of verse 10 to poetry. Words that are set apart and the, the typeset is different. That's because he's quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting passages straight out of the book of Psalms. And here's the interesting thing. The words that Paul is about to quote are found not once but twice in the book of Psalms. Two Psalms he quotes, almost identical. And by the time Paul writes it down in Romans 3, you say, wow, God put the exact same thing in the Bible three times. Maybe we should listen to it. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their, lisp, uh, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to me. If you can understand this one point, really deep down in your bones, you get it, you understand it, almost all of the other confusing things in the Bible fall into place. When people come to me with Bible questions, with concerns, they don't get something, maybe they want to argue about something, 99% of the time, I come back to this right here and say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, you forgot this. Don't, you got to understand this. This is so basic and so foundational, and Romans teaches it clearly, clearly, clearly. Second truth you need to see. God in his mercy sent Jesus to be our Savior by bearing the punishment for our sins. So today... I know a lot of these people are not in Odessa, Texas, but a lot of quote-unquote influential, highly respected Bible scholars will say, well, you know, there was a guy named Jesus and he came and it seems like from history that he probably did die on a cross and he just came to do that to set a good example for us and uh, to show us 
how to love your enemies and how to be a good person. And when you come to Romans, Paul says that's not why he did it at all. That's not the point. The point is that he died on the cross to take your punishment. Remember, you're a sinner by nature and choice. God's wrath is upon you. And Jesus died, Paul describes it in Romans 3, as a propitiation. That's a big word, but it's an important word in the Bible. And it means he died to take the wrath of God that should have fallen on you. You're a sinner by nature and choice. God's wrath is upon you. Jesus died on the cross, standing between you and the Father, taking that wrath. And so you see it, for example, clearly in Romans 5.8, a verse that a lot of people have memorized. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died in the place of the ungodly. Number three, justification is a gift of God's grace received only by faith. Justification is an important doctrine. You really got to get this. This is the cause, as Martin Luther is reading through the book of Romans, and he's reading through the book of Psalms, and the book of Galatians, the light bulb goes off for Martin Luther, and he says, wait a minute, you can't give money to the church to be justified. You can't light candles in a church building to be justified. You can't do penance according to what the priest says to be justified. Justification comes from God's grace through faith, and then here comes the Protestant Reformation, and you see it clearly in the book of Romans. I got to describe justification this week to a guy who has not grown up in church and has never heard, never had anyone share with him the truth about Jesus. And we're sitting there, and I'm talking to him, and I'm explaining justification, and the idea is really simple. You are guilty. Justification is a legal term. So we're in a courtroom and you're standing before the judge and all the evidence has been brought in and you're guilty. You deserve to be punished. But instead of the punishment falling on you, Jesus enters the courtroom and says, I died for the ungodly. I took that punishment. It's not the idea that God looks at you and he says, well, you're just so sweet. We're going to take this sin and sweep it under the rug and just forget that ever happened. Good judges don't do that. You know that as well as I do. Justification says that instead of God punishing you like you deserve, Jesus steps in and says their punishment has been paid. It's been taken care of. Justice has been served, and you get to go free. And I explain this to the guy. Again, that may be familiar to you, but when you're a grown-up and you've lived a tough life and you've never heard that, he says, that's too good to be true. It doesn't work that way. I got to do something. You can't. You don't. That's how it works. It's grace. It's offensive to people. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, but God justifies you of his grace, and it's received only by faith. Number four, union with Christ means Jesus' death and resurrection become ours. We've had a couple weddings here lately, and in both of those weddings, Corey did one, I did one, we talked about the idea of biblical marriage as two people becoming one. Two people become one flesh. The Bible says that God created that marriage, two becoming one, 
so that we would understand something way more important, and that is union with Jesus Christ. That when you repent of your sins and you trust in what Jesus has done for you, the two of you become one. And God looks at you through his son. That's why, you know the verse in Galatians where Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. That's not saying forget about the color of your skin and men and women are, is no difference. And, and it's not the point. The point is all of us, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, when God looks at you, he sees you as the son of God. And a lot of modern translations come in in Galatians and they say, well, we shouldn't just say he sees you as the son of God. We should say he sees you as sons and daughters of God. That's not the point. The point is not that he sees you as his child. The point is that he sees you as Jesus, the son, because you're united to him, union with Christ. His death and his resurrection become ours. And so in these weddings, we talked to these couples and we said, look, two of you are coming into this marriage. Maybe one spouse has a lot of debt. Maybe one spouse doesn't. When the two of you come together, it's not yours and yours anymore. It's y'all's together. You're united. That's the way this thing works. And that's, that's a picture of what you need to understand on number four here, union with Christ. Number five, believers are dead to sin and alive to God and should live as living sacrifices. So when you talk to that person and you explain grace and you explain justification and they say, this is great, I don't have to do anything. I can just accept what Jesus has done for me and then I can go do whatever I want to do. Paul says at several points in Romans, absolutely not. You've lost your mind. If you're truly a believer, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And so look at Romans 6. Six nineteen. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin... You become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that, Romans 6.23. So many times we use Romans 6.23 as a verse about salvation. That's really not what the verse is about. When you read it in context, the verse is really talking about once you are already saved, you're growing in sanctification, and you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. Um, where are we at? Number six, God is sovereign over all things, including the process of salvation. You read Romans 8, 26 to 30. You read Romans 9, 1 to 33. God is in control of it. There's no way around that. People like to argue about those chapters. People get uncomfortable with those chapters. All I can tell you is they're in the Bible. Read them. Don't try to argue them away. And they're there. And so you're going to have to deal with it. 
I'm more than happy to sit down and to visit, visit with people about those passages. More than happy to do that. Here's what I'm not more than happy to do, is to sit down and visit with somebody about that passage and they look at me and say, well, I just don't believe that. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? It's in the Bible and you just don't believe it. That ends the discussion. I don't have anything else to say. I mean, it's there. We can argue about what it means and how it applies and we can talk about that. But for someone just to say, well, I, I don't think that's how it works. Well, okay, there you go. You're the authority. Number seven, here's sort of a counterbalance to number six. Human beings are fully responsible for their relationship with God. The fact that God is in control of it does not let anybody say, well, I'm just a, I'm a puppet. I couldn't help one way or the other. And Paul makes that point pretty clearly in Romans 10 when he talks about the necessity of preaching or sending and preaching and hearing and believing and calling out to Jesus Christ in faith. You are responsible for your relationship with God. Number eight, God has justified us, therefore we're free from all condemnation. Romans 8. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And you remember Romans 5.8 says that he gave him up and he died for us while we were still ungodly. While we were sinners, he did that. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning, this is Landon's very putting the cookies on the low shelf. The hard part's over. The sacrifice has already been made. Now that he's done the hard part, of course he's going to be faithful to you. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's made the declaration. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword... As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has justified us. We're free from condemnation. Number nine. Believers must continually and seriously fight indwelling sin. And this one is sort of a counterbalance to number eight, right? You look at number eight and you say, well, God's justified me. There's no condemnation for me. That sounds like I can pretty much do what I want. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. But Paul turns around in Romans and says, look, if you're serious about this and you're truly a believer, you have to fight sin constantly, continually, seriously. You have to fight it. Romans 8, 13. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Pretty black and white. You fight sin, you kill it, you live. You don't fight sin, you give into it, you live according to the flesh, you die. Black and white. Number 10. People matter to God and people should matter to us. A lot of times we don't think about people and their value necessarily when we think about Romans. We think about doctrines, we think about teaching, we think about all these deep concepts and things we debate and argue about. But in this sort of magnum opus, this great work that Paul wrote and that we look back on and recognize as his greatest letter, the whole last chapter of the book is about people. Just thanking this person, saying hello to that person, uh, encouraging this other person. It's just a laundry list of folks over and over. Paul does this in his letters. He talks about other people, but not this, this much. This is by far the longest uh, amount of space he gives to just talking to people and encouraging people. And as believers, as Christians, we believe the Holy Spirit of God inspired this book, and that's kind of a remarkable thing. That as God is thinking, I'm using Paul to write this book, this important book in the Bible. What do I want in there? We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about justification. We need to talk about propitiation. We need to talk about sanctification. We're talking about all these great doctrines. And then at the end of it, he says, people. The Spirit of God, you understand, inspired Paul just as much as he did in chapter 3 when he's talking about justification by faith alone. To write the last chapter of Romans where he says, hey, Phoebe's a, gr a great lady, fantastic lady. And Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus, they risked their necks for me. They put their life on the line for me. He talks about Mary and Junia and Ampliatus and Urbanus, Aristobulus. He talks about his kinsmen, Herodian. He talks about those who belong uh, those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. A whole family gets lumped in there. The workers of the Lord, Trephana and Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus and his mom, Julia, Olympus. Talks about all these people. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sisipater, Tertius, Gaius. That's not just the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this great letter and then Paul signed some names at the end to say hello to his buddies and then amen, the book's over. That's the Holy Spirit of God inspiring Paul all the way through saying the relationships you have with these people matter. And that's a great way to end the book of Romans, okay? Because when you come to Romans, there is so much doctrine in it. And I'll just be honest with you, there's a lot of nerdy theology guys at seminary who could live in Romans. There's a lot of pastors in every town in the United States that could just live in Romans. And they could just sit in their room and they could read this book and they could read Martin Luther and they could read Augustine and they could read all these great theology books and on and on and on. And at the end of Romans, this great book, it's like a slap in the face saying, hey, read it and close it and go out and deal with people. Work with people, love those people, shepherd those people, pastor those people, encourage those people. 
people matter. You can't just live in a bubble of ideas and say, well, I have my faith and it really is just sort of between me and God. Because Romans 16 says, no, it's not. It's between you and God and everybody else on the planet. People matter to God and people matter to us. So there you go. We'll end Romans with that. I'll pray and then uh, I'm going to give you a few things to, to pray about as we wrap up. Father, we're grateful for this book and just a, just a scratch on the surface tonight of the things that we see in, in the book of Romans. Um, doctrines that are hard to understand sometimes, words that are not familiar to us. But Father, we're thankful for the way that you have used the words in this book to save people and to change people and to change history. Father, I pray for the folks in this room that um, whether it's a New Year's resolution or just a commitment flowing out of our time together tonight, that they would, they would make this book important in their life. Maybe that some would memorize it, like Martin Luther said. Maybe that we would try to read through it and understand it, even the difficult parts. Maybe that we would read it humbly, not trying to argue with some of the things that we find in this book, but just accepting what your word says. Father, we're grateful for the Bible, and uh, we're grateful for the book of Romans. We're grateful for Paul and how you inspired him to write these things. And Father, my last request as we end our time together is that even as we make truth and doctrine and, and the book of Romans a priority in our life, let us never forget the importance of people and relationships. Let us never get so locked into our little Bible bubble that we forget to look outside to the world that's lost, that needs to hear the good news. Somebody needs to be sent and somebody needs to preach so that they can hear and that they can understand and they can call out in faith to Jesus for salvation. Father, help us to always have our eyes not only fixed on you, but looking to the world that needs you and looking to people in our church family that need encouragement, that need our prayers, that need our support, that need our friendship, that need a listening ear. Father, help, help us to make people important in our life. Forgive us when we're selfish. Forgive us when we're self-focused. Forgive us when we care more about studying and, and having our nose in a book than we care about the people around us who have needs. Father, again, give us wisdom as, as we try to understand the things in this book and as maybe the folks in this room go back and study and read some of these verses. Help us to understand what your word is saying to us and, and how it applies to our life. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.